0: Welcome to Asia Pacific Defense Reporter, your go to source for cutting edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid fire analysis and commentary from the Asia Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. I thought I'd start this podcast with a few items of good news rather than immediately plunge into doom and gloom when it comes to the national security front. So we'll do some happy things and then revert to type with everything that's going wrong. Now, first of all, I noticed on December 7th that Australia and Papua New Guinea have signed a bilateral security treaty. Uh, PNG, of course, is militarily insignificant, but is nevertheless a very important regional player. And Australia strengthening relations for uh, information sharing and consultation, that's obviously a very good thing. Plus, we've also donated some more money, $200 million, to strengthening the police force in PNG. So that's going to help them, obviously, with internal matters, cracking down further on crime. So that's a good one. Another announcement at about the same time was that Hanoi signed the contract for the delivery of 129 extremely modern infantry fighting vehicles under Land 400 Phase Three. The first eight vehicles will be built in South Korea, and the balance will be built at Avalon Airport in um, the same very modern factory that's going to be producing 30 salt-propelled howitzers and 15 artillery in-field resupply vehicles as a result of an earlier contract. But that one reminds me, look, that'll be another story for a rainy day. How a former chief of the army threatened to sue me because I concluded that the original 2012 decision not to purchase the same self-propelled howitzers was based in part on racism. I put that in writing in a number of articles and finally received a threatening letter to which I immediately replied, called their bluff, nothing further happened. But if anyone, any of that group within the army would like to dust off that legal action, bring it on, because my first witness will be Tony Abbott. Now, that's a little bit of a teaser for all of you. As I say, I'll wait until a rainy day. I have told the story in various versions in print, but when there's uh, an opportunity, when not much else is going on, I'll take you through it blow by blow. Even though I say so myself, it's a pretty good scandalous story that reflects extremely poorly on army senior leadership at the time. Now, also on the good news, I noticed that Bisalloy Steel, a very fine Australian specialised steel manufacturing company located in Wollongong, they, for example, will be doing the steel for the aforementioned infantry fighting vehicles, they've picked up a $15 million contract from Defence to qualify their steel for use on the AUKUS submarines. I mean, that's all very commendable. Qualifying steel for these sorts of high-end military purposes requires a lot of testing. In this case, it'll be 4,500 discrete tests. Having said that, I mean, Bisalloy is doing this stuff all the time, and there's nothing that mysterious about submarine steel, but something happening is better than nothing. Although, you do have to wonder, why would we be qualifying the steel now when the production of a submarine in Australia, if it ever happens, which I doubt will be starting in the early 2040s, so we're about 15 years ahead of time? I think this is because, and these are interconnected themes, in the United States, they are getting closer to passing the legislation that will clear the way to move ahead with this proposed sale of second-hand Virginia-class submarines to Australia. I've dealt with that previously. It's sort of an ongoing story. As I pointed out, the U.S draft legislation, which still has to go through Congress, by the way, but it seems it will, also has a number of very important reporting requirements for the US, either Secretary of Navy or Secretary of Defense to report to Congress on things like the progress that Australia is making on mobilizing its industry base. And frankly, there aren't that many good news stories out there on that front. I mean, for goodness sake, the most populous state in Australia cannot even get a $5 billion road intersection right. They've squandered that money on something that makes traffic congestion in a city even worse than it already is. And they expect that we'll be able to build newly powered submarines. Not going to happen. Anyway, but getting back to alloy the United States, so one of the things that needs to be reported to Congress is progress that Australia is making on mobilizing for eventual construction of submarines. And this is a good little story. I'm I'm guessing that defense has been looking around and has said, okay, what can we do right now that is going to give people in the United States some ammunition, verbal ammunition, some justification to show Congress that yes, Australia is taking steps in the direction of being able to manufacture nuclear-powered submarines. But also, I have to say, even talking of the AUKUS submarine, that annoys me. That, that's that's kind of a lie because there is no AUKUS submarine in the sense that Australia is not involved in the design of it. That design effort, as I've said before, is well underway. And the AUKUS submarine is a British submarine that will be sold to us with things that we want, such as a U.S. combat system and U.S. weapons. I've said before, this talk about a an Australian-U.S.-U.K. combat system is just, as far as I can tell, complete nonsense. People, you know, politicians and people in uniform keep on talking about Australia already operating a combined U.S.-Australia combat system No, it's not. It's a US combat system. So the the amount of... I'm reluctant to use the word lie because that's a very harsh word. It implies that people are doing things that are deliberately misleading. That sort of goes to motive. But there's just a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of the mainstream media is either not interested in pushing back or don't regard this as a sufficiently important topic. And so when these bits of information, misinformation, I'm sorry, keep on being repeated over and over again, after a while, they start to acquire a veneer of truth. Here's another little fact. We'll we'll switch now to the United States and the legislation. Now, one of the people in the United States who's been pushing this very hard is a Democratic congressman from Connecticut by the name of Joe Courtney. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Friends of Australia Caucus. I've never met him. I, I hope one day that I will be able to, at the very least, speak with him, have a chat on the phone, in the hope that he can shed light on some mysteries of where this figure of three billion US dollars, four point seven billion Australian, came from, and things like that. So, Joe Courtney really been pushing very hard for AUKUS, really been pushing very hard for the sale of Virginia class submarines. But when you look at the congressman's website, the United States is a lot more transparent in this regard than Australia often is, as I remind people in just about every episode. His biggest donors by group, first of all, are defence and aerospace companies, and secondly, labour unions. Of the defence and aerospace companies, the biggest single donor is General Dynamics, General Dynamics' own electric boat. Their main shipyard is in Groton, which is right smack in the middle of Congressional Joe Courtney's district. You see, in other parts of the world, this might be regarded as some sort of conflict of interest or somehow improper. No, it's not. That's just the way that things work in the United States. There's a link between politicians and large donors and, in particular, how the US defence budget gets spent. So I have no doubt that Representative Courtney, when the Australian money starts to flow through, he will, of course, be taking credit for that. And his major donors, Electric Boat and the labour unions, of course, will be delighted And I just, you know, I just just wish that, again, some of my colleagues in the mainstream media were reporting on this. I'm not suggesting anything is improper going on, but I just think that it's important to know that Mr. Courtney is going to be a direct beneficiary in a political sense of Australian taxpayers' dollars. And I remind listeners that as far as we know, we have no visibility of how our donation will be spent. It simply gets transferred to the United States. I don't even know whether whether it's taking place in a single lump or whether it's a billion here and a billion there. But once it reaches the United States, it then will go into an account that is managed by the Secretary of the Navy and will be spent by that person on whatever they wish. And as I say, I suspect that quite a big chunk of it will be going into the congressional district of Joe Courtney because that's where Electric Boat and Croton do their work. Now, when we look at these reporting requirements in the United States, there's another one. Congress has been asked to receive a progress report on how Australia is proceeding with a number of matters. I've mentioned our industrial base, but also they want to know how we are progressing when it comes to the East Coast nuclear-powered submarine base and I wonder how they're going to react when they're told, oh, well, the Australian defence minister has said, we're not going to make a decision on this, that'll that'll be in the 2030s. The, the same thing as the, the nuclear waste dump has been booted down the road. Another reporting requirement is how the combined Australia, UK and US submarine fleets are going to contribute to national security. That's going to be an interesting one. I don't know what the position of the UK is regarding Taiwan, but are we thinking that the UK will automatically come to the defense of Taiwan if there's an attack from China? I do not know. In Australia, we are told that no decisions have yet been made in that regard, which you would think would not go over that well in the United States. So I suspect what's happened is not for the first time in human history. Our politicians have given behind-the-scenes assurances to the Americans that, yes, we're going to be there, But they've said, look, this is a touchy political subject in Australia. We don't want to expose our position prematurely. So just put up with this for a little bit longer. But rest assured, we will be there with you. That would be disingenuous. But as I say, I think that this sort of stuff is fairly normal in international relations. And it's just my speculation anyway. On the ongoing battle of me versus Defence Industry Minister Patrick Conroy on the Defence Budget. He claims it's going up. I say that it's either going backwards or or at the very least flat. I have had a nice win of sorts in the sense that this arose at the National Press Club. I quoted from the ASPE, Australian Strategic Policy Institute Budget Analysis. The minister said that that information from ASPE was selectively picked and now via ASPE The co-author of the original budget analysis, Jennifer Parker, has written an article, and I'm going to quote from some of it. I mean, she's quoting me, so there's no point me quoting her quoting me. I'll, I'll pick it up here. And this is quoting directly from the article. Jennifer Parker says, the minister rejected the assertion, the assertion of budget reduction, saying, Aspie were picking and choosing between what parts they counted and what parts they didn't count. I urge you to look at the defence papers. Every year, defence funding goes up. And Jennifer Parker continues, his response highlighted the greatest single risk to Australia's defence, the squeezing, in inverted commas, of the defence budget. The issue that became readily apparent in that response is that the government is still not ready to admit that the defence budget is under extreme pressure at a time when Conroy has stated that investment is needed. She continues, just bear with me, I'll, I, I I try not to uh, read large slabs of text, but this is really worth hammering home, I think. Budgets are not a matter of interpretation or perception. They are simply a matter of numbers and maths. As part of the process of making the numbers work, defence is compensated for fluctuations in the exchange rate and is forecast to receive $4 billion in compensation over the next three years. This is, of course, not real money. It simply acknowledges the fact that defence pays more for capabilities when the Australian dollar is low. When you remove the compensation for foreign exchange fluctuations, the real funding of defence becomes clear. In March 2022 budget forecast, defence core funding was predicted to be 154 billion for the next three financial years. The budget delivered in May 2023 forecasts 156.5 billion for the defense over the same period she says that's an increase yes but it's not a real increase when you remove the 4 billion compensation for exchange rate fluctuations defense receives 152.5 billion dollars across the next 3 years this is a reduction of 1.5 billion to the defense budget over the next three years compared with the last year's forecast. I'll stop at that point because in in a sense, there's no need, I hope, to labour the issue. Defence funding in real terms is being reduced and the government is fibbing when they assert to the contrary. They do themselves no favours at all by this sort of black is actually white kind of claim. And I know I throw in the occasional sort of gratuitous bit of political commentary. It doesn't surprise me that they're falling in the, the polls. And I predicted this when I started these podcasts, that if defence is a microcosm of how the government is behaving, then they are in real trouble because they are over-promising, under-delivering, and are being deliberately misleading on a number of important topics. And while Australian people, they'll be more concerned about interest rates and levels of immigration and the failed voice referendum, asylum seekers, and all of those sorts of things. National security is a part of it. I can't measure, you know, how many percentage points it's worth, but it's something that's part of the mix. And the government is doing a poor job there. That's you know it's just not not me mouthing off. I'm trying to explain why there's evidence to show that the government is doing a very poor job also on the extremely touchy topic of Israel and Gaza, I'll again venture to say on that one that the government is not saying anything on the continuing pounding of Gaza with airstrikes and artillery strikes and I think seventeen thousand civilian deaths. 5,000 of whom are children, because they are just plainly scared of being accused of being anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, and a pro-Hamas. Well, I've argued before that I certainly believe that I can be critical of Israel, but without a touch of anti-Semitism, and certainly without any favoritism at all for Hamas, whose attack on October the 7th was a truly barbaric episode in human history that needs to be condemned. But now enough is enough because the number of civilians being killed it concerns me for a couple of reasons. Firstly, just from a, a moral point of view, an ethical point of view. I think that it is wrong. But also, equally importantly, I think that this is damaging Israel's long-term interests. The country is losing international support. And the longer this goes on, uh, the more questions are going to be raised about the brutality, frankly, of the assault on Gaza. And as I've described before, it's just the practical reality of when you've got so many people the majority of whom are civilians. Again, no one's arguing that packed into such a small area. When you drop a 2,000-pound JDAM on something, even if your target is a a couple of of Hamas operatives, when you're using such an enormous amount of force, just the blast and the debris and all of the consequences, means that you are going to be killing civilians. Now, you might say it's not our intention, but the reality is that a disproportionate number of civilians are being killed. I'm not making a joke of this, but when I say that anybody who's watched an Israeli mini-series mini like Fauda, if people haven't, I recommend it, F-A-U-D-A, it's it's very realistic. It gives you a pretty good impression of how good Israeli special forces are and also the very difficult conditions in which they operate, but I think the time is now overdue for Israel to stop this relentless bombardment of Gaza and look at dealing with the problem of eliminating Hamas by other means. Smaller groups of people, it might take longer, but I really think that it's in Israel's interest to back off and to stop the horrendous civilian casualties and I'm just very sorry that um, our own government doesn't feel in a position to say something similar. I'm just going to leave you with my continuing obsession with the premature, unnecessary retirement of Taipan helicopters. I've explained previously why they, in fact, perform better than Black Hawks do, longer endurance, better sensor mix, all the rest of it. With the, the Taipans being retired prematurely, it means pretty much that our LHDs are, I don't want to say useless, but that they will be operating at a far lower level of capability without taipans. The, the whole original idea of the combination of LHDs and taipans was that with six taipans on the flight deck, you could do a company lift of soldiers to the shore in one single wave. At the moment, we only have three Blackhawks in country and two go through all of the training and qualification necessary to be able to conduct amphibious operations at the scale that were previously achievable with Taipans, it's going to take years. So because of this decision, we've got special forces without helicopters for deploying their troops. And we've got two big LHDs that for years to come, will not be able to carry out an important part of their functions. I'll have a great deal more to say in a similar vein about the foolishness of replacing Tiger's, the armed reconnaissance helicopters with Apache. Again, the normal disclaimer, nothing wrong with Apache. It's a fine, robust helicopter. It's in service with a number of countries, but it's an older design. And in comparison with Tiger, It suffers from that in a number of areas. And here's one this isn't a joke, but I'll leave you with this thought. The rotor blades on Apache helicopters are just too long for it to fit into the elevators of the LHDs. And the only way you get it up and down the elevators is by removing the rotor blades. And I can tell you for a ship at sea, when you've landed on deck, if it's anything more than, you know, sea state one, which is much dead calm for people who are not familiar with sea states you're not going to be wanting to take rotor blades on and off that's not going to happen so the helicopters are going to be up on deck they're not marinized the corrosion problems are going to be vast and we're spending seven billion dollars unnecessarily well i'm glad i started with some positive stuff because once again i've concluded there on a bit of doom and gloom thank you for listening see you next time bye for now that's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit AsiaPacificDefenceReporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.